0: Nearly 100 years after the 1918 influenza pandemic, we're just beginning to understand the naturally occurring adaptive immunity of those who were in contact with this devastating virus. With those survivors who are still with us at least 90 years of age, what are we learning about their long-lasting immunity to this virus? You are listening to ReachMD XM 157 the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon, and our guest is Dr. James Crow, Jr., Professor of Microbiology and Immunology and Director of Vanderbilt Program for Vaccine Sciences at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Crow is the senior author on research published in the journal Nature on the cultivation of antibodies from survivors of the 1918 influenza pandemic. Welcome, Dr. Crow.
1: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
0: Dr. Crowe, the subjects you worked on for this research uh, certainly were old, ages from 90 to 100. But could they really remember what went on in 1918? I mean, this must bring back difficult memories for them, losing family members, friends, things like that. What was your experience with this?
1: Well, this is actually an interesting part of the story. Our collaborator, Eric Altshuler, is really a clinician who studies rehab medicine and is a very creative individual, and he got interested almost as a layperson would in the whole idea of 1918 and started thinking about it. And he had interest in whether or not immunity still persisted and started thinking and talking about this a few years ago. In fact, he let it be known through the press in his local area and even got picked up nationally that he was interested in finding survivors. And he was inundated with six or 700 calls and contacts of survivors who wanted to participate in the research.
0: Why do you think they wanted to participate?
1: Well, he's commented that these people are actually the parents of what has been termed the greatest generation. So these people taught the greatest generation how how to act. And so one is they're very responsible people who are often committed to participating in in public good and public welfare, having been through several world wars and, and other major events of the 20th century. The other is many of them actually did remember family members, parents, brothers, sisters who were infected or ill or even died. So some had direct memories. On the other hand, Dr. Altschuler reported that some didn't have any specific memory of the actual year 1918, although we know it's highly likely they were exposed and infected that year given what happened in the country since the publication of our paper, I daily have been getting handwritten letters from all sorts of people all over the country contacting me just saying, I remember the event. I survived it. My brother, sister, aunt, mother was ill or died, and I'd love to participate if you need any more volunteers. So it's just been overwhelming. The Experiences that we've had interacting with these people, and to realize what a major historical event this was in the country—it touched so many people in profound ways.
0: For those who did remember clearly, what did they say in terms of what the illness was like for their relatives or friends?
1: Well, I'm not sure they remember that detail. And I, I personally supervised the laboratory features of it. So, Dr. Altshuler. Uh, really was the one doing the patient care. And as everyone knows, because of HIPAA and patient confidentiality, we really are not able to go back from the people that we got antibodies and clones from to contact them again and and ask them. It's the, the patient care privacy and confidentiality things that we all experience as providers has dominated the clinical research world. So Whatever we learned, we learned when Dr. Altschiller was interfacing with them the first time. But more a sense of a, a major event, a, a major time in history, was what people we were
0: recalling. Why did these survivors survive?
1: Well, we've wondered whether or not the particular antibodies that we're finding, which are incredible antibodies, they're, they're the most potent antiviral antibodies against any virus that I've ever seen. If you take the individual antibodies that we found from these people, you can mix them in the lab with virus in various dilutions and these viruses will work in picogram amounts measure amounts that we can almost not even measure and they still work whereas most antibodies against a virus that you would make or have and use as a drug would require microgram amounts so so these work at a very, very high dilution or in very, very small amounts. They're they're able to kill virus.
0: On a simplistic view, uh, many of us think that antibodies are not terribly effective in killing viruses. Is this not true?
1: Well, that's not really true. If, if we make monoclonal antibodies in the lab, they can be very potent. Antibodies are also the effector molecules that uh, mediate the protection from vaccines. So when you get a vaccine you generate antibodies, and those antibodies are what kill the virus, and that's that's basically how most viral vaccines work. And in fact, there's one example on the market, palivizumab, with a trade named Synagis, which is marketed by Metamune, which is given prophylactically to high-risk infants to prevent severe RSV disease. So, I mean, there's even a commercial product that shows antibodies alone can be used as drugs.
0: Well, why do you think these antibodies were super antibodies in terms of their efficacy?
1: Well, when we obtained the cell lines from these individuals, the, the B cells that were circulating and made cell lines, we found the antibody sequences and determined the nucleotide sequence or the gene sequence for the antibodies. And they were very unusual in that they were highly mutated in the body and they'd been refined by a process called somatic hypermutation. So these antibodies have lots of mutations. And when we use them in the lab and see how they bind to viruses, one thing we found was They bind very, very tightly. They get onto virus very rapidly and they virtually never fall off. And that, that appears to be the key to why they kill virus so efficiently. So these people appear to have been exposed multiple times during childhood to related viruses. They mutated their sequences. Those mutations allowed the antibodies to grab on very tightly and therefore to kill.
0: By the way, on a general level, how do you make these antibodies? Well, this is
1: sort of tricks that we've developed in our laboratory over the last 10 years. We take the cells out and we isolate the B cells from all of the other white blood cells, and B cells are the the cells that make antibodies. We immortalize those cells by infecting them with the monovirus, EBV, Epstein-Barr virus. We mix that virus into the cells, and it transforms the cell almost into a cancer cell. Of course, many of you would know that EBV infection is associated with some cancers like lymphoma or, in Africa, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. So we basically can turn the B cells in the lab into a cancer cell that can be grown, and those are somewhat unstable. So we actually use an electrical technique where we fuse Epstein-Barr virus infected B cell. We fuse it with a real cancer cell, a myeloma cell that we've gotten from other patients, then we really have truly a sort of cancer cell and that cell continues to secrete the antibody that was in the B cell we got from the person. So it's a complex process, but basically we we generate a cancer cell from the B cell from the donors.
0: Now, why does a a cancer-type cell more efficient in making these antibodies than a non-cancer cell?
1: Well, if we take the B cells right out of human beings and put them in, in culture, we can keep them alive with lots of magical potions using cytokines and feeder cell lines, and we can sort of trick the cell into thinking it's still in the body, but we can really only do that for about three weeks, and then the B cell dies, and so the normal B cells in your body, they're made to die after a period of time, and then you make new ones. You may make daughter cells of a B cell, but that actual cell will die eventually, so that's good, right? You don't, you don't want B cells to keep proliferating when there's no virus around, because if they do, then you've got B cell lymphoma. So the B cells are made to die, and when we, when we put them in vitro in the lab and, and culture conditions, they do die. So we really have to turn them into cancer cells to keep using them.
0: If you have just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, and our guest is Dr. James Crow, Jr., professor of microbiology and immunology and director of the Vanderbilt Program for Vaccine Sciences at Vanderbilt University's School of Medicine. We are discussing the utility of antibodies derived from the 1918 influenza pandemic survivors. Dr. Crow, how do you and the other researchers protect yourself from getting infected with this virus? that you have now cultivated?
1: Right. Well, this is a, a high level of concern for those who work with this virus. And so in response, the government and the National Institutes of Health and, and various bodies have developed guidelines for safe use of the 1918 virus and viruses like it. So really, these viruses are only present in a very limited number of medical centers in the country. The The center that we worked with is the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and they have the virus in their their high-containment biosafety labs. So what we were able to do is to use genes that were cloned from the virus, so we actually have pieces of the virus. We can make proteins from the virus. And in my own laboratory in Nashville at Vanderbilt, we did the entire project of finding antibodies using only proteins from the virus. and, And, of course, proteins are not infectious, so we actually never had infectious virus. In Nashville, Tennessee, we we only had proteins, and we were able to do the whole isolation process using the proteins. Of course, when we wanted to prove that the the antibodies would kill the actual virus, we shipped the antibodies to Atlanta to the CDC. So uh, these things are done under high containment with special protective clothing and aerosol containment and buildings that have security and air management. So all of this is done in a very thoughtful way.
0: Now, you mentioned that you're using the proteins of this virus to make the antibodies. If you wanted at Vanderbilt to use the live virus in your laboratory, could you?
1: I couldn't currently because we have not properly registered. It's theoretically feasible given Vanderbilt is a top-ten medical center and we have all sorts of containment labs for HIV. There's investigators here using SARS coronavirus. So a medical center like ours has the facilities to do this but really we tried to avoid it because of just the complexity of it and the registrations the NIH gets involved and as well the the USDA gets involved because we don't want these viruses getting out into birds so even to work with other types of flu there's a registration process for the USDA to make sure the the viruses can't be released to birds and the complexity of the regulation is extremely high so it really wasn't necessary for us although theoretically if we really had to we would but One of the things that our work shows is that the government has been putting a lot of money in the last 10 years into biodefense centers, into flu centers, into government labs and academic labs to facilitate collaborative work so that any one investigator like me does not have to put all this stuff together. And we were able to work with the investigators in New York, clinical investigators in New Jersey. The virus, animal, people at the CDC, and in fact, a protein lab at the Scripps Research Institute. So the work we did involved five centers, and not any one of them had to have all the pieces. And this reflects success in the government's program of investing in infrastructure.
0: I want to thank our guest, Dr. James Crow, Jr. We've been discussing the utility of antibodies derived from the 1918 influenza pandemic survivors. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill. And you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.